Good morning, Grace Church. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Haggai, all of Haggai, two chapters. So buckle in, 38 verses. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the prophet Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills on the grain on the wine, the oil, on the ground brings forth, and what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord, of hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. 
do not uh, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the month, ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches it, his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward. From the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the twenty-fourth day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one of the, by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Thanks, Dana. Still shorter than John 9. <laughs> well, I had tons of great jokes to tell about Pastor Dave. I thought he'd be gone, but he's he's here, so we'll, we'll skip those. Uh Unfortunately, they had to come back from vacation a little bit early, but they'll have lots of Christmas memories to tell around Christmas dinner and things like that about rain and camping and tents in in ruin, I guess. So I'm going to preach through Haggai over the next three weeks. And this this was part of the plan was was uh, when they were on vacation, but then to have two weeks where Pastor Dave could be in the office, but not have the deadline of preaching. Um, there's just a number of things that 
uh, other projects, meetings, other ways to just use his his week without the 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 push of of having to preach. That we wanted to to free him up and provide uh, some time for that. So pray for him as he spends the next two weeks um, working on on some of those things. So um, that's why I'm preaching. That's why I'm preaching for three weeks. Um, and I wanted to preach through a book of the Bible. And so that narrowed it down. How many books can you fit in in three weeks? Uh, and I thought about preaching through Malachi, since we're doing that in Berea. It's very similar material, but it's four chapters. And there was just there's a lot in Malachi that I didn't feel I could do justice in three weeks. So plan B was uh, the high school kids... We went through Haggai in the spring, and so I was familiar with it, felt like I had a good handle on it, and so that narrowed it down to, to Haggai. So that's how I landed there. So my hope is that despite its, its small stature, it's, again, shorter than, than John chapter 9, but we'll see how glorious this book truly is. And even as I try and squeeze out as much as I can over the next three weeks, I know that I'm still leaving things on the table. So... That's where you guys can can study on your own, follow along, and, and you're going to see things that I won't be able to cover. Uh, that's the glory of Scripture. But over the next three weeks, let's let's hope and see uh, what the Lord would be pleased to do through a, a quick journey through this book. So in order to understand the text this morning, but also for the next three weeks, let's ask the Lord for help. So would you pray with me again? Gracious Heavenly Father, you are the giver of good gifts. We praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your plan of salvation and that we see more of its unfolding in our time than even the prophets and the angels. We thank you for your word. We thank you for all of it. So this morning and in the next few weeks, I ask that you would bless our time in Haggai. May it be filled with glory. May it point us to Christ. May it motivate us to seek you and your kingdom. Your word can do so many things at the same time. I ask that that would be the case. I ask that through your spirit, it would comfort, convict, encourage, strengthen, and glorify you. So now let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Hey, guy. It's the book you probably fly through in your yearly reading plan. It's the one you mix up with other minor prophets like Hosea or Habakkuk. Is that... it's, it's the one where you say, I, I know I've read it, but I can't tell you much about it. Well, hopefully, going slower over three weeks, we can understand what it's about. That we can slow down and sit in this small book. So this morning, we're going to look at chapter one, and we're going to use that to also look at the background. Uh, Haggai is, is one of the minor prophets simply because of size, not significance or anything like that, but the, the length of his book. Uh, and then we'll break up chapter two over the next two weeks. And kind of my, my working theme for the book of Haggai is, is verse nine of chapter two. Where he says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So kind of think, think of that as the, the overarching theme of Haggai. So we'll expand on that. But 
let's look at chapter one this morning. So again, chapter or verse one kind of gives us the, the launching point to get our bearings for a background. And then the, the next passage, verses two through 11, will be uh, God speaking through Haggai, calling the people uh, to action, to, to fix their priorities. And then 12 through 15 is their response. How will the people respond to these prophecies? So the first verse, it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Okay, so we're in a minor prophet. We're probably not as familiar with where this fits within the Bible. We're familiar with the beginning of the story. We're familiar with the New Testament, perhaps. But we're less familiar with this post-exilic period uh, where they've been taken into exile and now they're finally returning. Uh, So how do we get our bearings? Uh, So I'm going to go back to the Exodus to help us explain it, but also use Ezra a little bit. Uh, So it'll be a a little bit longer of a background, but hopefully it will get us some good bearings so that we can understand what Haggai is talking about. So, like I said, we have to go back to Exodus. God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, and God makes a covenant with them. He makes promises to his people. He promised them land. He promised that they would be a blessing to the nations around them. He promised that he would be their God and dwell in their presence. This is something that God had even done with Adam in the garden. And he provided other ways to dwell with the patriarchs. And now he would provide a a very formal way to do that through the tabernacle. It would be the way that the people could meet with the Lord and not be consumed. You don't casually walk up to a holy God. And so God provided stipulations and commandments of how to meet with him. So they would go through a high priest and he would offer sacrifices before the Lord. And the tabernacle, this kind of portable tent, was where this took place. And then he would go on further in this covenant and explain, if you're going to be my people, if you're going to represent me to the world, you need to be holy as well. So God gave them commandments and statutes and rules for how to live and remain in God's presence. They were to look and act differently than the nations around them. And there were conditions on this. If they obeyed, they would be blessed. They would have prosperity and peace. And if they disobeyed, they would be cursed. There would be famine and war. And one of the most significant curses was to be removed from the land and taken into exile. The people were warned of all of these things before they had even taken the land. And then when they do conquer the land, the Lord commissioned them to build a permanent structure, a permanent temple where he would dwell. And so King Solomon does this. And the Lord was pleased to dwell there. He would accept their sacrifices and offerings. And they would observe festivals like the Passover and the Feast of Booths. But during this time in the land, they were continually warned about the covenant, about violating the covenant. Prophets would be sent 
to call the people to repentance and to return to obedience before the Lord. And ultimately, this prophecy about exile was fulfilled. God sent the Babylonians to invade and conquer Israel. And they took away all the holy vessels of the temple. They destroyed the temple. And then they took away the people. This was done during the the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. So now Israel is in exile. They have no way of dwelling in God's presence. They had no way to offer sacrifices or keep the feasts. And so questions arise. Has God abandoned them forever? How can we ever be in relationship with this God? Well, over time, Babylon was conquered by another empire, the Persians. And it was during this time, after 70 years in exile, that Israel was allowed to return to the land. So we're almost up to the time of Haggai, but there's a few more pieces that I I, want to help us see. So the first one, and these are in Ezra, in the book of Ezra. You don't have to turn there. I'll read a couple highlights. So chapter 1 of Ezra, Cyrus is the king of Persia. And he gives this interesting commission. It's mentioned a couple other places in scripture, but in Ezra 1 verse 2, it says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So you have this Persian king, Cyrus, that the Lord is working through to commission the Israelites to return to the land. And not only that, but to rebuild the house of the Lord. And even on top of that, he is financing this. He will provide materials and and money for them to undertake this effort. It's kind of this Old Testament great commission almost. There's a lot of overlap with that. Well, the people do ultimately return. Among them, Zerubbabel. And in Ezra it says Jeshua, but it's the same person as Joshua that we see in Haggai. So they're there. They were in exile and return. So moving on, they do, by by chapter 3, they begin rebuilding work. They they start with the altar. The altar is a place where sacrifices were offered. So even though the temple hasn't been rebuilt, there is a place where they can offer sacrifices, where they can uh, make atonement. They can do their regular offerings. And again, this is led by Joshua and Zerubbabel. So then they start rebuilding the temple and they lay the foundation. And once the foundation is laid, they respond with a worship service. Ezra 3 verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good For his steadfast love endures forever. And they did this because the foundation of the house was laid. Things are are going well. They're making progress. They're 
obeying the commission that Cyrus had given. But by chapter 4 of Ezra, there is opposition. So when the Israelites were removed from the land, it was populated by other groups of people. So the Samaritans live in the land. So initially they come and they say, hey, we want to help you rebuild. And the, the Israelites say no. And so that turns into them opposing the rebuilding. And so they, they threaten uh, harm to the Israelites and ultimately go to the king at that time, King Artaxerxes, and ask Artaxerxes, put an end to this. Make a decree that the Israelites have to stop building, rebuilding the temple. And so that's what Artaxerxes does. And it, it, it says uh, at the end of chapter 4, Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So now we are up to the point of our book, Haggai. So the rebuilding stops. And we don't know, there were varying re- reports of how long that pause was until the time of Darius, but it was likely at least 10 to 12 years. So a decade has passed since they started this foundation until now in the second year of Darius where we, we pick up the story. Let me note just a couple more things very quickly, and then we'll actually get to our passage. So Darius. Darius is a a Persian king, so over time he has risen to the throne. He's the same Darius that was witness to Daniel in the lion's den. So he saw the the work of the Lord. He saw Daniel, who was presumed dead, (laughs) rise out of the pit, and he rejoiced. So he's familiar, at least in some ways, with the Lord's working. It's also a reminder that though some things have, have been good for Israel, they return to the land, they're given permission initially to rebuild, they're still an occupied nation. They are still under a foreign king. And this is accentuated when it mentions uh, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, his job is governor of Judah. And if you're familiar with Matthew's begats, kids, Zerubbabel is in the line of David, in the line of Christ. It's a kingly line, but he's a governor. Here's a king without a kingdom. And now you have Joshua. It says he's the high priest. A high priest in the line of Aaron, the one who would go into the Holy of Holies. And yet he's a high priest without a temple in in which to minister. This is the setting now of where we find ourselves in Haggai. So Haggai is a prophet, and he begins speaking the word of the Lord to the people. He says, these times, this is verse 2, he says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. This is the perspective of the people. But then in in verse 4, Haggai flips it. He says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While this house, the temple, lies in ruins? (laughs) Haggai is getting at the fact that you guys are building. You're able to build, but your priorities are out of whack. 
So there might have been good, legitimate reasons for them to cease building. But at least a decade has passed. And they haven't resumed the rebuilding effort. But now they're building their own houses. And not just building a a very basic structure. It says they're paneled houses, which indicates a a nice, a fancy house that they're spending a lot of time and, and resources to build. So Haggai turns the screws on him and calls him out for this. Notice also that it's it's not condemning the people building their own homes. It's the order. They're not doing things according to God's priority. So Haggai's condemning their priorities. They've neglected the Lord's house, which is supposed to serve as the center of their world, where God would dwell where they would be able to approach him in worship, offer sacrifices, and, and be in right relationship. And now, in their reluctance to rebuild, have occupied their time with their own houses. So Haggai goes on in verse 5 and says, Consider your ways. Consider your ways is mentioned five times throughout the book and two times in our passage. It's a repeated call for the people to think and live intentionally. But it's a little bit more than that. It's, it deals with the heart. Another way that the Bible says the same thing is take heart, O Israel. This is more than a mere intellectual exercise. It requires a deeper heart commitment to properly prioritize our lives. So Israel has fallen into disrepair. Our lives and families can fall into similar ruin and disrepair if we don't carefully and continually take heart and consider God's priorities. If we don't do that, we will end up drifting into other areas. Have you ever vacationed at the ocean and you're you're playing in the waves and time goes past and you realize I'm like 50 feet away from my beach towel. That drift happens without you actually noticing, without much effort. And that can happen with our priorities. If we don't take the initiative, if we don't determine what our priorities will be, and to keep them the same as the Lord's, we can easily drift. Remember, Israel was forced to stop building by the Samaritans and the king, and there might have been a mix of legitimate and probably illegitimate reasons to cease or at least to cease for as long as they had. And it's the same for us. There's a lot of things in life that can throw us off course. We can't control that health issues, short term or chronic unexpected bills. You get behind your budget. It can simply be a major life change, like graduating high school or college or a new job. There's the potential to throw us off course. Other times it can be a slow drift. Maybe you, you work out this new work schedule, and on paper it looks, it looks reasonable. But suddenly the, the longer commute or the extra hours take away from other priorities. Or maybe it's adding another activity to the kids' schedule. It's only one more night, but it pulls us 
causes us to drift. All of these things, all of the life situations, controlled or otherwise, will test our priorities. And like the Israelites, there's probably a mix of legitimate and illegitimate reasons. So how do we keep the right priorities? What happens when your priorities get thrown off? Well, if our priorities get thrown off, the answer that Haggai provides is that we will struggle. We will flounder if we're going against the Lord's priorities. Look at the list in verse 6. It's almost all of the basics of life. Food, drink, clothing, money. And for Israel, none of these things are quite going well. The food and the drink are not satisfying and they're drying up. The clothing is insufficient. The money they're earning is going into a purse with holes at the bottom. This is not a picture of flourishing. And we should use them as warning signs to check our priorities against. Maybe we're not starving or lacking warm clothes, but maybe it's a lack of joy. Maybe it's frustration that things don't quite seem to come together. Maybe you haven't recognized the drift you're already in. But again, when we lack flourishing, when we lack joy, we're meant to have in Christ. Let these warning signs serve as a chance to examine yourself, to consider your ways. Israel's not flourishing because they have the wrong priorities. And they're not living intentionally according to God's purposes. Which is essentially what got Israel sent into exile in the first place. And now they are repeating the errors of their fathers. Let's look a little bit closer at this image of putting money into bags with holes. Quite an image. Our government is modeling for us what it means to put bags into holes. It prints money at will. It spends beyond her means. Our banks loan far more than what they have in reserve. It's not sustainable. It's theft. Our nation, like almost all nations, is putting money into a bag with holes. And it hurts all of us. Our children will definitely feel it worse someday. And we all feel the effects of that with inflation. Our money doesn't go as far as it used to. And while we can't really affect things at at the government level or at the central bank level, it should serve as a warning sign for us. Because we are not immune from getting our own financial priorities off track. So consider your ways. Are you putting money into a bag with holes? Instead of budgeting well, do you put it on the card? Are you spending beyond your means? Have life events caused you to drift away from God's priorities and suddenly you're trying to play catch up? Has it caused you to stop tithing? Now, I I want to be really clear that as a church, we want to help. If there are people struggling financially, we want to help. But it's also important to recognize that if our priorities are wrong, whatever short-term help we offer won't ultimately solve that problem. So consider your ways. Look at Israel. Apparently they had enough resources to build their homes with cedar. 
And yet they were still feeling the futility of all of this. So Haggai continues in verse 7. Again, he says, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So again, Haggai is calling the people to consider their ways. And here's the solution to futility. Go up, get wood, and start rebuilding the temple. That's the first step for Israel to begin matching the Lord's priorities. And we also get more of more insight into God's view of things. Why were the people struggling and floundering? God himself caused it. They looked for much. Behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, that little that you brought home, the Lord says, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins. While you're busying yourself with your own house, with your own priorities. And so he calls for a drought. Shuts the windows of heaven. So there will be no prosperity. As long as the people's priorities are out of line. Are out of, out of order. This is exactly what Deuteronomy 28, when the list of curses is brought before the people. Deuteronomy 28, 38 says this, You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. God is in control of the harvest, and he is causing futility for the people. Not only was their food and drink not enough, but there was a greater significance to the things mentioned here, uh, the result of the drought. Grain, wine, and oil were all necessary elements for offerings at the temple. This was a, a crucial ingredient in their worship. So even if they desired to honor the Lord with offerings at the altar, the drought ensured that it would come up short. Their flourishing, like anyone else's flourishing, is dependent on the Lord. So the call for us, as it was for Israel, is to consider, repent, and rebuild. Notice that the promise is that if you start doing these things, the Lord will take pleasure The Lord will take pleasure when we have right priorities. The Lord will take pleasure when we offer right sacrifice. It's the same thing that the Lord said when he made a covenant with Israel in the wilderness. It's the same thing that he said when Solomon dedicated the temple. He said, I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. If if the Lord has said he will be at the temple... It makes sense that they should rebuild the temple so that the Lord would be pleased to dwell there. So when we seek the Lord, when we put him first, the Lord is pleased. Even more, he's glorified, it says. And the Lord also promises that he will remove the curses and replace them with blessing. So how will the people respond? The challenge has been put before them by Haggai. How do they respond? 
This moves us to the, the final section. Led by their leaders, Zerubbabel and, and Joshua, the people respond well. Verse 12 says they obeyed the voice of the Lord. Before they could obey, they had to hear the voice of the Lord. This is the kind of language that is all over the Pentateuch, but especially Deuteronomy. Hear and obey. This is the fundamental duty of man before God. This was Israel's responsibility to fulfill their end of the covenant. And now, after being called to consider their ways and repent, the people do. Here's another little piece of the story we get from Ezra. The, the king made the decree, told them to cease. But this time when they rebuild, they don't wait for permission. They didn't wait for another authority to give permission, to get permission. This time, they get permission from the Lord and they obey. They begin to work on the temple because the Lord is commanding them to resume. This, this will be followed by Darius making a decree supporting the rebuilding effort and ensuring that it will continue. But under the leadership of Haggai, Zerubbabel, and Joshua, they went to work. Because it says they feared the Lord. They feared the Lord above all things, even earthly rulers. It can be tempting to rely on other voices or authorities to tell us what to do or not to do, give us permission to do something. But what we see here is we must obey God's voice alone. The authorities of our lives won't necessarily tell us when to seek God's priorities and to do them. We don't wait for someone to tell us to get into God's priorities. We need to fear the Lord and take action when we see our priorities have gone astray. So what's the result of their obedience? They receive blessing. Verse 13, Haggai confirms the Lord's pleasure with Israel. It says, I am with you, declares the Lord. God did not cast them off forever. The people had violated the covenant countless times over their history. And this generation had neglected the covenant once again. And yet the Lord, through Haggai, pursued them, and then graciously restored them. He had never abandoned them. He was pleased to dwell with them. And that's the whole point of the the temple and the sacrificial system. The whole point of redemption is that God would be with his people. That was the grand purpose all the way back in creation. And now Haggai tells the remnant that God is indeed with his people. Even before the temple is rebuilt, God also calls them his people. But at the beginning of the chapter, that wasn't the case. In verse 2, they're just referred to as these people. Kind of off and distant. But now, (laughs) the Lord is with them. Now they fear the Lord and walk in obedience. And so the relationship has changed. Verse 12 says that the people obeyed the Lord, their God. And Haggai confirms that God is with them. Fellowship with the triune God is the greatest blessing. And that's where Haggai starts. And there are more blessings than that, but this is the foundational blessing. 
that God would dwell with his people. It's why he sent Emmanuel, God with us. And it's because of Jesus that we don't have to offer animal sacrifices to dwell in his presence because Christ became our sacrifice once and for all. And through that, Christ grants us the kind of access to the Father that is greater than even the high priest had at the temple. Because Jesus became the greater, more glorious temple who is now ascended to the Father. And in gathering in a local congregation, like we're doing right now, through the Spirit, we ascend into the presence of Christ. We don't have to gather at a temple. We don't have to have a physical building that we need to take care of or rebuild. But the principle about gathering before the Lord remains. Just as there was a unique and special manifestation of God's presence at the temple, the same is true when we gather on the Lord's Day. We get to dwell in the presence of the triune God. And this must be our priority because it's the Lord's priority. Don't neglect the gathering. Not only because it's risking curse, but it also misses out on true blessing. We sing, we pray, we hear the word of God together. We partake in communion together with the God of the universe. So you're here this morning and you get to experience all of these blessings and now resolve to return next week and the 50 weeks after it. If you're out of town, find a local church there and dwell in the presence of the Lord. This is not for my benefit or pastor Dave's benefit that you attend weekly. This is for your benefit. This is pleasing to the Lord. And the Lord didn't stop there at that blessing. Verse 14 says, he stirred up the the spirit of the people and they went and worked on the temple. The people repented and got to work putting things right again. The spirit, another indicator of God's presence was with the people, empowering them for the work to rebuild the temple. So another blessing beyond just dwelling in his presence is that when we seek after the Lord's priorities, we will get help in the hard work of recalibrating. If you're trusting in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. Ask the Spirit to stir you up to good works. Ask the Spirit to help you in the hard work of changing your priorities. Now, it might sound as if what I'm saying is all on us to obey. If we work, then God will bless us. And we do have a responsibility to uphold. But notice that God initiates everything in this chapter. The people are busy with their paneled houses, and he sends the prophet Haggai. The people would have kept right on in their indifference without God speaking to them. Then, even before they begin the work, God speaks again and says, I'm with you. I'm blessing you. I'm pleased. And then he stirs up the people to work to receive additional blessing. And all of this is because the Lord keeps his covenants to his people and even stirs up the people to keep their side of the covenant. So how do we relate it to us? Knowing that God is faithful to his covenant people, how do we get back on track if our priorities have drifted? It might seem overwhelming if you've 
drifted quite a ways. You might have several areas of life that are out of order. Start with the biggest thing first. As I said, commit to being here on Sundays. Worship in God's presence with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Ask yourself, if you're not here on a weekly basis, why am I not? What's getting in my way? And consider your ways. Where have you gotten off track? Are there areas you need to make changes? Have someone else evaluate your life. Help them. Have them help you consider your ways. Pray. Seek the spirit to reveal the areas where you are out of step. And then repent. Turn away from your own ways and resume seeking God's priorities. Remember that Christ has atoned for our sins and is pleased to forgive when we have wandered off. And then, in the power of the Holy Spirit, get to work. The remnant continued rebuilding the temple in order to dwell in the presence of God. They feared God and strove to keep his commandments. They worked hard to put the right priorities in place. And the call is for us to do the same. Beyond Sundays, begin looking at other areas of your life and consider if and where you and your family have the same priorities as the Lord or if they're out of order. Gathering with the saints on the Lord's Day is the most important, but there are plenty of other ways we can get off track. But the process is the same. Consider repent, and get to work rebuilding. Here's one other way that the Bible talks about priorities. On the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus tells people not to be anxious. And then he gives the remedy, proper kingdom priorities. Matthew 6, says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not our kingdom, not our righteousness, but his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. All these things meaning clothing, food, drink, provision. He says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. If life events have caused you to get off course, let Haggai or Matthew 6 reorient you. Here's my conclusion. At the beginning of the chapter, we found Israel in ruins. And while they lived in nice houses, their priorities betrayed God's priorities. But when they were called to consider their ways, by the grace of God, they repented and worked to seek after the Lord's priorities. So the call is the same for us. Seek after the Lord Jesus Christ and orient yours and my life around his life. There are times when our routines and priorities will be challenged. They will get thrown off. And the call is to return to the Lord, seek his glory and presence, and build for his kingdom. 